Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Stock Talking. Today's guest is Philip Kiley, who is a software developer and author who recently released a book on technical writing, Writing for Software Developers. He's been in for a number of highly visible publications, including Smashing Magazine, CSS Tricks, and Twilio's developer blog. For his book, he interviewed amazing writers and founders like Matt Levine of Bloomberg, Patrick McKenzie, who you know is Patio11 on Hacker News, and Jeff Atwood, co-founder of Stack Overflow and Discourse. I'm super excited to have him on the show. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Awesome. So I want to start off by asking you a little bit about why you wanted to write about technical writing, specifically through the medium of blog posts and articles. You know, as a software engineer, I feel like I read all types of stuff from documentation to eBooks um, to O'Reilly books to, you know, anything under the sun. But honestly, like a lot of the value I think I found has been through authors like yourself posting tutorials and specific kind of contains, you know, anywhere from a thousand to 2000 word articles on stuff. So yeah, talk a little bit about that topic and why it interested you. So technical articles are really interesting because they're in the middle of a very wide spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, you have you know, if you go on Stack Overflow, someone has a question, you answer it, it can maybe be two sentences and two lines of code and you've made their day and you've solved their problem and they can move forward with their project. And that's great. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people writing 500,000 page long technical books that tell, you, that tell you everything you need to know on a very specific topic. And those are also really, really valuable resources, but they take a long time to create and they're a big investment as a reader to get through. So what I love about technical articles is that I can create a great technical article that's 2,000 words in maybe 10 hours of focused work. And someone can read one of those in 15 minutes, half an hour, build an example project, learn some new skills, maybe take some of the sample code that I've written and apply it to a project they work on. So it's overall a very valuable resource to be able to create, and it's something that you can create relatively quickly compared to a whole book. I'd say I probably spent hundreds and hundreds of hours working on this book, for example. So that's one reason that I wanted to write about them. Another reason is that there's just a massive demand both from leadership. I know I've been reading technical articles the whole time that I've been programming, and they've been very helpful for me. So there's a massive demand from readers, which means publishers, really want to be cranking these things out. And like I said, you know, it's only about 10 hours to write one, but that's still 10 hours of really focused work. And so as a publisher, it can be kind of difficult to find programmers who, are, who have the right skills and who are interested in investing that amount of time in creating an educational resource. So the demand for, from publishers for technical articles is really high. If you combine all that together, if you want to get started with writing technical content, I think that writing a technical article for a publisher is the best way to practice this and grow your skills. And you don't have to write it for a publisher. You can write it for yourself. 
I focused on writing for a publisher, number one, because that's what's uh, been one of my major sources of income in the latter half of college. And then two, because it's uh, because when you work with an editor, you're going to get a lot of really valuable feedback. Definitely. I think the, the craft of technical writing itself is so interesting to me. I mean, compared to something you would do in terms of prose or kind of a more qualitative uh, essay, I think what really differentiates technical writing is the focus on whether it's code blocks or uh, direct quotes from someone or, or kind of getting far more in depth. So both in your interview with Jeff Atwood and Matt Levine, I thought it was really interesting that both of them mentioned kind of getting deep in the weeds, whether it's through uh, code blocks or in Levine's case through uh, quoting SEC filings or conference calls or, or things like that. Uh, I wanted to ask you about how to balance the level of kind of breadth and depth. So in like a high level um, tutorial, say I'm like setting up like a Django app or something, you know, you'll often get to, to the boilerplate and get down to specific things about how to do things, you know, with the ORM or, or rendering a page or something like that. But obviously you don't want to go too deep into that at the risk of boring your readers. So how have you tried to balance those things between um, getting high level enough to talk about what you're doing and low level enough to actually allow someone to, to make software? So one thing I talk a lot about in my book is defining your audience, and that's what's key here. Um, if you know who you're writing for, you'll know what you need to write. If I'm writing someone's very first guide to Django, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time telling them how to set things up. I'm probably going to need to teach them how to make a virtual environment. I'm going to tell them what PIP is and how to use it to install a package. If I'm writing a guide for someone who already has a Django app in production that's supporting 100,000 monthly active users and they want to add one small feature, then I'm going to be able to skip all that stuff because they're going to be a very, very advanced reader and I'm going to be able to just deliver them, um, just deliver them some technical content that is going to directly address their specific need. If I'm on that end of the spectrum, then it's going to be mostly code blocks and then not explaining what the code does, but explaining why you're including that code and the decision-making process behind creating that code as opposed to maybe writing the same function with a different approach. So that's really the job right there is defining your audience, figuring out what they need to know, and then communicating at the beginning of the article, hey, this is who this article is for, this is what it's going to teach you, and then delivering on that promise in the article. And I think that some people can be a little, a little uncertain about doing that because you don't want to be excluding people from reading your work. You want your work to reach as wide an audience as possible. But the counterintuitive thing is, if you want to reach as wide an audience as possible, you actually have to narrow in your audience. Because if you're not writing for a narrow group of people with a technical article, then instead of being useful to everyone, it's just going, not going to be useful for anyone. This is something that actually when uh, Patrick McKenzie was tweeting about the book, he said, you know, you could write writing for X, where X is software developers in my case, but any other profession. And it's interesting to write a book that uh, he said anti-targets, 99% or 99.99% of all people who write, because my book is not useful for someone who is a, you know, an English major and wants to write better poetry but it can be really useful for someone who's a software developer. Similarly, if you're writing a technical article, you can make it really, really useful for someone who wants to do an incredibly specific thing with CSS while making it entirely useless to anyone who wants to do anything else. 
And that's what you have to do in order to make a good piece of content. Definitely. I think in the context of business writing or, you know, anything in financial markets, this has a lot of applications. I know I've been writing about stocks a long time. And when I'm crafting a piece, one thing I often think about is, you know, there's going to be a certain subset of, of readers who just want a price target and a recommendation. And that's essentially what you often get from like a Motley Fool or Seeking Alpha. Um, on my blog, like I, I do like to try to go deeper um, and kind of explore things, whether it's filings or like an important event that happens in 8K or kind of walk through the balance sheet, cash flow statement, um, earnings, things like that. But I also know like a, a bunch of people are going to find that boring. But in a certain sense, like if, if that's not, you know, your forte, you know, maybe go look at another blog. So I wanted to ask you, like, let, let's try to extend this idea of software writing and kind of the right balance of breadth and depth um, to financial markets or to business writing. Uh, for something like that, and I think that your discussion with Matt Levine had you know, touched on this a lot, um, what are some ways you can explain a really complicated concept to people and per perhaps convince them to see something a certain way, but not lose the audience in the process? So there's a few takeaways from technical content that I think business writers should be able to apply pretty directly. One important thing when you're presenting a code block is it needs to be a complete example. Your reader should be able to take that code block, copy it, paste it, run it. So for example, if you are writing some business content and you have a bunch of data in it, you should have your graphs be complete examples of the things that you're trying to demonstrate. If the reader has to do a bunch of work to piece together all of your examples to create a coherent narrative, then they're less likely to be able to derive the value from your article that you're trying to deliver. I think that another thing is, you know, with financial data, there are however many terabytes or petabytes of it out there in the world. Um, and a lot of the value that I that you can provide as a writer is to save your readers time through focusing their learning and curating good information that they actually need. When I'm writing technical content, for example, when I'm writing about Django, the Django documentation is amazing. It is very, very comprehensive, and you can find the answers in my tutorials in the Django documentation. And I know that because a lot of the times, stuff in my tutorials comes from the Django documentation when I'm writing about Django. The value that I'm providing is that I took 10 hours to go through the documentation, build an example project, and present it to you in a format that you can read in 15 minutes or half an hour. And so similarly, when you're writing about business, it can be a uh, real service to your readers if you're able to just take a concept, and even if you can't explain it better than the definitive source, you can explain it in a way that they will be able to grasp it more quickly. And then I think the final thing that you can provide is multiple understandings of the same topic. So everyone has their own unique background and view that they can bring to things. So if you are, in your case, an engineer, I think that talking about markets from an engineering perspective, thinking about them as a system with technical components can be a interesting value to provide readers that, you know, even Matt Levine wouldn't be able to provide. Like Matt Levine, 99% of the time, 99.99% of the time can write a better article about a financial thing than I can. The one place where I might be able to hold my own is if we were talking about it from a software engineering perspective, because I'm a software engineer, and that's the unfair advantage in that uh, domain. 
And so that's what I'd say to look for when trying to explain a complicated topic. Look for your unfair advantage, that bit of perspective that you have that lets you see it like no one else does, and then write from that perspective, and you'll be able to do the thing I was talking about earlier. You're going to be able to provide a lot of value to a niche audience who has that same background. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes total sense about having the unique value proposition and trying to find within yourself the pieces of information you can present to an audience that would be differentiating. One thing in your book you you spend some good amount of time writing about, which I think differentiates this book a lot from other books on technical writing, is how to get your stuff out there and how to get people to notice it, right? Because you could have this value prop, but if nobody is on the receiving end, if there are no consumers, it's not really going anywhere. So you, you focused on distribution, uh, marketing, being able to get the content out. These are actually a lot of things that engineers kind of poo-poo is not interesting uh, to, to them, right? Because their marketing is the kind of like an engineer thing they're not interested in. Um, but yeah, talk about why you think these things are valuable and why you wanted to devote a substantial portion of the book to talking about them. When I started writing for clients over a year ago, I knew almost nothing about marketing and distribution. And I'd had projects that I'd worked on for months before that no one saw because I didn't know how to show them to people. And so one of the things that I learned from my clients is how to distribute my work, you know, where to post it, how to write a headline that isn't clickbait but gets people to click on stuff, and how to provide a valuable resource that people are going to want to share and want to repost. And so once you figure out the part of the job that is creating something valuable, then the really important thing is maximizing for the impact of that thing. And once you have this artifact, the way that you maximize for the impact of it is not necessarily by continuing to refine the artifact itself, but by refining the way that you explain to people what it is and why they can use it to extract some value. So that's why I spent so much time writing about it is because you can write the best technical tutorial in the whole world and you won't have really done anyone any good if no one reads it. Whereas if you, you know, even if obviously every time I write, I'm trying to write the best technical tutorial that I can. But even if theoretically there could exist a better technical tutorial, as long as the thing that I have written is good and is going to be useful for people, it's my responsibility to get it to the people who it's going to be useful for. And that's why I like to partner with clients with big mailing lists and distribution channels um, so that I know that people are going to see the work that I've been producing. And it's why I put so much effort into marketing my own book because I knew that, you know, I, I knew that this book would be useful for people if they found out about it and read it. Definitely. And I, I want to focus actually on one medium of distribution that isn't so much in the article space as it is in the book space. So you distributed your book through Gumroad. And I actually first got familiar with Gumroad through seeing Daniel Vasallo, I think his last name is pronounced, who you interview in your book, um, on his book about AWS. And seeing and learning more about Gumroad, it's actually been pretty, pretty incredible to see their growth numbers um, and how popular the site has become as a way for authors to get out their content. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about Gumroad and why you chose it to distribute your book and, and kind of what attracted you to Gumroad in general. Yeah, I looked at every single place to list my book on the internet. I looked at Amazon, LeanPub, Paddle, all these different places. I, uh, I'm a developer, so 
and I love working with Stripe and their APIs and stuff, I looked at setting something up myself. The reason that I went with Gumroad is pretty simple. It's because they balanced low fees. You know, if I had gone with Amazon, they'd be taking 65% of every single book I sold. With Gumroad, it's 3.5% plus 30 cents. So we've got the low fees on one side. It's basically as cheap as setting up Stripe myself. And on the other side, having features that I need, like distribution. Um, with Gumroad, I'm able to make discount codes really easily, do refunds really easily. They pay out every week. So it checks all the boxes on features. The thing is, there are a bunch of places out there that do that. Um, the reason that I ended up going with Gumroad in particular is because I follow the founder on social media. I follow the company itself on Twitter. And hearing their story, hearing the things that they do to support creators made me want to partner with them in particular so that, I mean, with the amount of sales I've made, I've, I'm probably paying them this week something like $700 in processing fees, maybe $800. And I feel really good about every penny that's going there because I know they're going to use it to do good things. So that's what I really wanted in a distribution partner. And Gumroad has, Gumroad has been really good to me so far. They have retweeted a lot of my content, um, the launch announcement. They, uh, they said that I might have set a single day record. I don't know if they were just being nice or if they actually meant it. Um, but they've done a lot to help boost my signal, and I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Congratulations on that, by the way, because I saw that tweet from Gumroad. I mean, ge generally, the day you released your book, you were getting a ton of promotion. Um, you were all over my Twitter feed, so that was awesome. Um, That's the advantage of working with some people like Patrick McKenzie, Daniel Vasallo, who have those really big and dedicated audiences on Twitter. I'm really grateful to everyone I interviewed for providing the content, of course, um, but also everyone who I interviewed did at least something to help me sell the book. And that, to be 100% honest, that's part of the reason why I wanted to put interviews in the book. I knew it would be able to help me make a better book if I had perspectives other than mine. But when I launched this book, I had something like 20 Twitter followers. I knew I could do a good Hacker News post and get some attention, but I knew that in order to really create the launch day atmosphere that I wanted, I would need the buy-in from people with existing reputations in the industry. And I'm really grateful to everyone who really just lent me their reputation for a day to let me sell this book. And that's one of the reasons why I focus so much on the editing process and formatting and making sure it really looked good is because I knew that these people were staking a portion of their reputation, a small portion, but these people were staking a bit of their credibility on this project and I didn't want to let them down. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit because I think the interviews in this book are so varied and you reached out to so many different people uh, that really in some ways is the backbone of the many things that make this book unique. It reminds me actually a bit of um, Peter Seibel has a book, Coders at Work, which I, I really got a ton of value out of. And, but, and that's just the interview transcripts. Like I like the fact that you actually kind of dug in, did a, a ton of analysis and walked through all the parts of of technical writing. So yeah, let's talk a bit about how you chose uh, the people you wanted to interview. Um, and then I want to dig into, did you see any commonalities across answers people gave? Um, what really jumped out at you? Things like that. Right. So I wanted to get a wide range of perspectives in my book, uh, which is why, you know, I interviewed Cortland Allen because he's such an amazing interviewer having done 
more than 500 for indie hackers. Um, I interviewed, I interviewed Matt Levine, even though he's not a programmer because his work is really popular among technical people. And so I wanted to get that outside perspective about writing for a technical audience, even when you yourself are not a programmer. That said, I queried probably a hundred people. So part of the interview list is, this is just the people who said yes. Um, and the, you know, the, the, there's, there's no point in getting into the people who didn't respond, um, but it's, you know, pretty much just the, the other names you might expect to put on this list if you were, you know, getting some Markov chain to generate a list of uh, tech people on Twitter, for example. And so I was very lucky with the number of people who responded and the range of people with their experiences who responded. I seem to have gotten one or two post people for every single topic that I wanted to talk about. Um, and once I had the once I had the interview candidates, though, a lot of the a lot of the interview subject selection, like I said, was out of my control because I queried a ton of people, very simple queries. These are the people who responded. Great. Now I have to actually build a book out of this. So. With the people who responded, I did a ton of research on them. I read, you know, Patrick McKenzie's written 500 blog posts. I probably read 200 of those. Um, you know, I read Daniel Vasala's book. I went through Cortland Allen's interviews, read a bunch of those. I read a bunch of issues of Cassidy Williams's newsletter. I tried to get a really good sense of these people, who they are, what they care about, and what they had already done before because the worst thing you can do in an interview is go in and ask people questions that they've already answered a billion times before. And so I had an advantage because most people haven't asked these people about writing before. It's usually more about business or about technology. So that was one advantage. But one thing that I did is before I did the interviews, I had a complete outline of my book. And when I say a complete outline, I don't mean the chapter titles. I mean that it was probably a few hundred to a couple thousand words per chapter pre-written before I got these interview transcripts. So I, I went into the interviews knowing the information that I needed, knowing a ton about the professional background of the people who I was talking to. And so I was able to write questions that would get me the information for each section of the book based on what each person had experience with. Yeah, I definitely noticed in your interview with Patrick McKenzie, some of the questions were, were referencing articles. Yeah, I've read a lot of Patrick, but I, I, some of the articles you mentioned I hadn't read, like the, the story about how he wrote the article on Heartbleed and wanted to be able to respond in 24 hours and really wanted to evoke an emotional response in people was really cool. So I, yeah, when you ask those type of questions, you, you definitely tend to get interesting answers. Is there anything else you, notable you kind of learned about interviewing through doing all these interviews? I learned to always make two local copies when you're, uh, when you're doing an interview because sometimes there were issues with sound on one of my devices, but fortunately I always had two devices running and so I never missed any content. I also learned that transcribing is ridiculously hard. Um, I'm a pretty decent typist, but it took hours and hours to transcribe all of this content. I definitely attribute though a lot of my success with this interviewing to when I was a freshman in college, I worked for the college newspaper. And my second semester, I was actually the features at, I was actually the features editor. 
So I was able to do a lot of interviews during that time and really practice and build up my skills at asking good questions, paying just enough attention to ask a follow-up question, but making sure I was keeping my eye on the clock and making sure that everything that we were talking about was on topic. And then the last thing that really helped me with these interviews was I treated them like content in the book. Obviously, I didn't want to change the words that anyone said or their meaning, but when we're talking like this, there are a lot of words like, um, uh, I think so, that you have to take a lot of that out in order for an interview to read well on the page. And so that was another thing that I did to make the interviews better. Yep. Yeah, the, it definitely shows. I mean, the, the interviews and the combination of the book and uh, just in general, how you marketed it, I, I think like, obviously, I think this would have done well in any environment, but I did kind of want to go into the uniqueness of this moment in time uh, for distributing something like this. So obviously, you know, all my podcasts thus far, I've talked about the impact of COVID um, on, you know, whatever it is, financial markets, uh, lifestyle, writing. Uh, so I wanted to to talk a little bit about digital information distribution in the age of COVID. Uh, I think I know for myself personally, I've been interviewing, I've been listening to way more podcasts and obviously doing this podcast myself, uh, just a result of, you know, getting more time back from not having to commute, um, not going out to, to dinner and, and, you know, all the things I would normally do pre-COVID. Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about um, how COVID has impacted you marketing this book. Like obviously you're doing a podcast tour. Um, as opposed to other things you might do in person. So yeah, how do you, do you think COVID has been a plus for, for this book, a minus? Um, what are your thoughts there? So I have a lot of thoughts and I'm going to try and make sure I hit all of them. First off with uh, your point on podcasts, I read a really interesting post by Channing Allen on Indie Hackers the other day saying that a lot of podcasts are actually struggling with listenership because people aren't commuting. Um, I I know that my podcast listenership has decreased a lot, but that's also just because I've been writing a lot. So my consumption of everything has decreased a lot, except maybe jelly beans. So, uh, so that's one thing. I started writing this book back in December over winter break. So I was at home, but I knew I was about to go back to school. And I did all the interviews uh, during my final semester at school. And then spring break comes and they send everyone home. And for at least a week, I didn't write at all, even though I was really feeling the pressure because I'd, set, because I'd set myself the goal of launching this before I graduate from college, which is on Monday. So I, but after a week, I started writing again and I was actually able to spend a lot of time writing uh, because my classes switched to pass-fail. So my apologies to my professors for the uh, drop in the quality of my work, but I was just writing all the time. And that was something that I'm not sure I would have, you know, obviously I would rather this wasn't going on. I would rather that I'd been able to finish my semester at college and that everyone was able to graduate together and all of that sort of stuff. But I did have a lot of time to focus on finishing this book, doing three rounds of editing to make sure it's the best that it can be. My friends had more time to do beta reads and help me really make sure that the message that I wanted to get across was getting across. So in terms of the writing of the book, I don't know, maybe a neutral. Um, in terms of the selling of the book, if you look at Gumroad's Twitter account, I have a tweet pulled up. Um, 
from May 11th, where they talk about their volume in April 2020, they did $12.1 million of volume of 126% year over year, uh, and they made a $107,000 net profit off of that. Um, Sahil followed that up, or Sahil uh, followed that up by saying that 14 creators made over $100,000 and 162 made over $10,000 in April. So looking at that and looking at the graph that they post of their volume process, you see a spike in March and another spike in April. I'm hoping that I'm contributing to a similar spike in May of just massive demand for information products because people are spending more time learning and people are spending more time creating. And I think that is, you know, with, with the human toll of all of this, I think that looking for silver linings, it might be too soon to do that. Um, but I think that it is a good thing that this, that this economy, at least, the information economy online is doing well. I know that it's a big benefit for me personally um, because while I'm fortunate to have kept my post-graduation job, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends haven't. Um, and, you know, obviously my, my family can't go to work right now. So it's a, uh, it's a really good thing to be able to participate in this one aspect of the economy that's doing really, really well. Yeah, well said. The the Gumroad growth has been staggering, and you know credit to the founder for posting some of the, that information, uh, even though it's a non public company. Um, I, I think the what's happening with colleges, and obviously you're seeing it firsthand, is really interesting. Um, Scott Galloway, whose podcast I listen to a ton, has this theory that a lot of schools are uh, are going to be in steep financial decline. Students might not come back. Um, in general, you know, people are going to think about trying to find areas, pockets of the economy that are thriving during COVID and, and go to those as opposed to continuing to be students. I mean, in one of those areas is the one we've been talking about where I just think being a content creator now, um, there are a lot of advantages post-COVID to where things would have been pre-COVID. I mean, in the programming software space in general, like I just look at my GitHub commit graph and I've been contributing a ton more um, you know, since March 18th or 23rd, whenever this whole thing started. So, yeah, uh, I think, like, the landscape is definitely changing. Um, obviously, at some point, like, people will go back to work and this whole thing will end. But are you of the view um, that this, uh, this time uh, since March, and who, who knows how long it goes through, but is this going to change things permanently? Like, are we going to see go Gumroad continue to thrive, or is this kind of a one-time, uh, one-off type boost? I hope that the information economy on the internet is going to continue to develop because it's a really great community to be a part of and because I think that people are getting a lot of value out of the stuff that we're creating. In terms of the rest of the world going back to normal, I don't know. Uh, I'm 21. I don't even know what normal is. I haven't really lived outside of the college environment except for a couple of summer internships. And so I know that it will take a while for the promises that higher education makes. Because, I mean, so here's the thing. I'm a young founder, right? I'm, I'm 21. I just made a bunch of money on the internet. The thing I'm supposed to be telling people right now is, uh, don't go to college. Go do your own thing and make some money online. I really believe that 
most people who can go to college should go to college because the residential college experience really is something special. The thing is, colleges don't like to admit that. They like to talk about the quality of the education. And the quality of the education I received at college has been fantastic. It's just been not particularly related to the stuff that I am going to be using over the next year to make money. So I think that in terms of colleges finding a recovery, that probably will not be complete until the colleges are once again able to safely offer the thing that people are paying for, which is not the professors and the lectures, as great and as valuable as those are, it's the ability to go live someplace for four years with like-minded people, build up really great connections, build a great network of friends who are all interested in doing really cool things, and having that time to really figure out what you want to do and how you want to do it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Uh, unfortunately, like that physical experience is so constrained by like how long the pandemic continues. And it definitely makes you think about like, what can colleges or universities offer that would have value where you don't physically have to be there. And obviously, like Coursera and Udemy and, and all these uh, kind of online course subscriptions offer a ton of value. Like I, I've definitely taken, you know, machine learning and other type of courses online where yeah, I, I found them to be more valuable than a lot of classes I took in college. Similarly, like, you know, internships, jobs I've had, I think like that actually, you know, to make, bring this conversation full circle, you know, working in like a complex system with real business problems where you'll often have to look at something like the Django source code or get into the internals of React, like that's often what leads you to great blog content and makes you kind of go, you know, veer off course from documentation and say, you know, who is someone who's had to like scale this? is that to do like this specific thing that blends these frameworks together. So I, I wonder if we're going to start to see a shift more from people who are just skipping the college experience in favor of getting direct on the job programming or be it other types of experience, you know, any type of job you could do from home. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it's going to be interesting. Um, I'm not sure that uh, like, I'm sure the strong schools will survive because they have massive, you know, multi-billion dollar, endowments. Um, but if the only value add is being on campus and physically being in a place, it's going to be a tough environment for colleges and universities to survive in. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, you know, I'm lucky to go to a school that has very strong financials. And I think that does a particularly good job of culture of cultivating a atmosphere of learning and has, you know, great professors, great equipment, all of this good stuff. Um, and I really do look forward to, for the sake of, you know, my friends who are in earlier classes and the people who are graduating from high school right now, um, I really do hope that that environment is something that, you know, we can just sort of put on pause until it's safe to reopen it and then that they can go have those same experiences because it's, it's kind of difficult to directly quantify the value that I've received from college, but I definitely would not have skipped it. And it would be really sad if people were unable to receive that same environment and the benefits that you're able to create in it. Yep. Well said. I wanted to close this podcast out by asking you for recommendations on books you found valuable um, to your own kind of writing career and career in general, um, other than your own book, obviously, 
So uh, what are you reading and what has really helped you um, as you've kind of gained speed as a technical writer? So it depends on what you want to do, but no matter what, you need to read a lot. Uh, I actually, so when I was very young, you know, I mean like two, three, I was like prodigy good at math. I was really, really good at calculations and computations and stuff, but I had no interest in reading until I was about six. I couldn't read. And then one day, well, not one day, but, but very quickly, sort of a switch flipped, and I got into reading, and I just read all the time, all through elementary school, middle school, high school, slowing down a bit in college because I have a bunch of other stuff to do. But I think that the most important thing is not any one book that I've read, but just the amount and getting a sense of what the written word on the page looks like. That said, I do have some specific recommendations depending on what you want to do. If you want to just learn how to write, there's a book called Bode by Bode that actually teaches you how to write, which is something that a lot of books on writing don't actually do is teach you how to write. Because the problem is that the secrets are really easy to explain and really hard to hear. It's basically, if you want to get better at writing, you got to sit down and write and you have to write a lot. And so that's something that I've been fortunate to have in college, you know, getting assigned papers and essays all the time and working at the newspaper is cranking out good writing to hit a deadline. And so that's been very helpful for when I wanted to sit down in the chair and write a technical article and write another technical article and get all this stuff out to clients. And it was very helpful for being able to put together the tens of thousands of words that I needed to do for this book. And so Bird by Bird is a great book for getting that explained to you in some uh, gentler tones, perhaps. If you want to write a book, a technical book, a non-technical book, any sort of book, and sell it like I did, the book to read is Authority by Nathan Bailey. That was, you know, I wish I could be an affiliate or something for that book because that was my page for page playbook on this whole process of selling it. And I attribute a lot of the financial success of this book to the lessons from that one. Another great book about writing is On Writing by Stephen King. That's more about, I think, the philosophy of writing um, and how his life influenced his work. I'm not a particularly big Stephen King fan, but I really like that book. And then the final thing is if you want to just get a sense of the craft aspects, maybe a little more of the literary aspect of writing that I do have a background in. And I do think, even though it might not directly influence my work, you know, my English professors would really shudder if they read the sentence structures in my uh, technical content. I think that reading a, I think that reading a nonfiction anthology like, you know, the Bradway and Hess uh, creating nonfiction guide and anthology that does, that both talks about actual craft aspects and then gives you just a ton of examples is a great resource. And then the other thing is just if you want to write technical articles, you have to read technical articles. That's why in my book I included three examples and I've just read dozens and dozens and no matter how many I read, whether it's for my own personal growth as a programmer, as a writer, or just because I found something that I think is going to help me solve a problem as I'm actually working on a project. No matter how many of these things I read, I always feel like I should be reading more and that's going to be the number one thing that's going to help me improve as a writer beyond, you know, just sitting down and writing. 
Fantastic. I will put all of those in the show notes. Uh, that, that's a ton of reading that I'm excited to do. Uh, I was going to mention too, uh, William Zinzer has a great book on writing well. That's also kind of a technical guide to writing. So some great stuff there. Um, yeah, super excited to check out your recommendations. Uh, Philip, it's been awesome having you on the show. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more about you? I want to buy your book. I want to follow you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me, Ben. Um, the best place to go, sort of the central hub for everything me, is philipkiley.com, which I'm sure you can drop a link to. Um, the book itself is available at philipkiley.com slash WFSD, which stands for Writing for Software Developers. I'm very lucky to have a brand new Twitter following, um, so you can go join my 700-plus new followers on Twitter, where I'm going to be posting a lot more and a lot of technical content, as well as information about the process of writing and selling this book. And then I do have a YouTube channel, um, again, just at my name, Philip Kiley, and I hope to be creating some videos soon, including a video walkthrough where I'm going to take a look at my Twitter analytics, Google analytics, Gumroad analytics, and really drill down into what happened on launch day to get you know, 15,000 people to see the book page and then 500 of those, of those people to buy it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I'd love to do a part two sometime. And uh, yeah, thanks again. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.